I should probably begin this podcast by sharing three things. Firstly, I used to be a techno-utopian. Well, well, sort of. I was someone who thought that tech would solve our biggest problems, that the role of the technologist was to build systems and tools for the betterment of society. Secondly, the sort of tech I'm talking about there due to both my age, I'm a millennial, and experience in the world of web and web-enabled businesses has kept me focused exclusively on the breakthroughs in information technology. So if you'd asked me one year ago if I knew how to define quantum computing, I would have stared blankly, nodded politely, and excused myself from the room. (laughs) And thirdly, if you'd asked me whether or not there was a kind of computing that could simulate natural systems, well, I would have smiled and said I'd never given it a moment's thought. But at the time, I did not understand that the universe was comprised of information. The nature of the universe seems to be that it is information at, at its core. Um, and what does that mean? I, I, don't, I don't really know. But it, it does seem like a really new idea to, to be you know, uh, transmitted into the sort of popular culture via a, a technology that's going to become mainstream the way computers have. And while I didn't know much going in, I did know this was going to be trippy. No, 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 wrong cue. This show can't be that on the nose. We have to, okay, we'll, we'll figure out the music later. <clears throat> okay, we need to contextualize this here. My name is Matt Hooper, and this fellow that I'm speaking with is Sebastian Hassinger, who leads academic partnerships for IBM Quantum. He and I met last year to produce this podcast, An Oral History of Quantum Computing, Part of Sebastian's job is to not just promote the awesome power of quantum computing, but help build out its workforce. And I'll actually let him explain it. Uh, I have a really fun job. Um, I'm building out the uh, ecosystem, to use the industry buzzword, of um, academic researchers around uh, around IBM's quantum efforts. So essentially, I'm trying to connect researchers in the field with the, the resources we have to help them do their work. So the systems, um, special types of access to systems that, uh, that the general, you know, sorry, that the general public, that the average developer doesn't need to do. There's kind of two ways to look at quantum computers. One is as a new way of computing, a new type of computer, a new technology, just like AI or ML. And in another way, it's an entirely new way of doing computation, of thinking about information, and of really probing the universe. I mean, these machines are useful to physicists who want to ask, and chemists who want to ask questions about how quantum systems behave. Like Sebastian, I too have a background in building ecosystems, those somewhat hard to define overlapping networks that comprise a technology community. I built my career in the New York City startup ecosystem. I have had the privilege of working with many of these large corporations, either within them or consulting for them, for the better part of a decade now. And at first, I must admit, I thought that this podcast would hew closer to the history of PCs, websites, smartphones, the the history of technology with which we have all become so familiar. But I was wrong. The history of quantum computing overlaps with the more popular technology histories we're familiar with, namely the rise of the internet, but only just. This is a technology story full of fascinating and complicated characters working hard to get to nothing short of the truth of the universe. You think I'm joking? Listen a little longer. There's something 
else that makes this show newly relevant too, and that's the 40th anniversary of the gathering at the MIT Endicott House. On May 6, 1981, a group of computer scientists gathered together with elite physicists to make the case that quantum phenomena could be used for computation. Now, I know what you're thinking about the technology industry in the early 80s because, hey, it's my frame of reference too. The earliest days of personal computing, the transformation of the rolling hills south of San Francisco into the epicenter of global innovation. Sorry, again, I'll I'll work on the music cues. They'll get better, I promise. But this conference, all the way on the other side of the country, marked the beginning of another seismic shift in the history of technology, one that had absolutely nothing to do with the information technology revolution we are all so familiar with and by which we've all been transformed. In fact, it took 40 years for it to intersect with with the rest of information technology, the IT industry, right? I mean, it, it's it's that that's the beginning of the story. What's interesting is that um, I don't know of any, um, certainly you can't point to an event like this in classical computing and say that's when the field was born, right? There was... Uh, whatever there's there's Turing and the code breaking in World War II. There's there isn't one event that's that's uh, in in classical computation or information theory that is the equivalent of the Endicott House Conference because so there had been conversations going on for a number of years since basically uh, maybe ten years but very fragmented and and mostly written off as wild-eyed kooks thinking about. Could quantum phenomena be used in the uh, in the representation and computation of information, right? Information processing, um, which seemed like a wild idea, but enough people sort of got interested in it as a topic, and it attracted the attention of, of Richard Feynman, um, who certainly was the towering figure in physics at that time. Um, and I think, actually, if I remember correctly, Ed Fredkin uh, from MIT. Uh, who was involved in the early days of the internet, he convinced Feynman there was some merit to this idea that Charlie Bennett and uh, a number of others, they convened this conference basically between MIT and IBM Research at the Endicott House, which is a property that MIT owns. Um, And over the course of a couple of days, um, they debate the merits of this idea of, of, you know, can quantum phenomena be used in computation. It was called the Physics of Computation Conference. This conference changed everything. While computer scientists and entrepreneurs out West were creating a society where everyone had access to classical computing machines, this was the moment, May 6th, 1981, on an early summer's day in Massachusetts, where they would look beyond the nascent era of classical computing to a place where computers mimic nature beyond the zeros and ones. It was here that they asked the question, if classical computing represented human-style calculations, could quantum computing represent calculations in the style of the universe? And this is where our story begins. I'm Matt Hooper, and this is Forwards and Backwards, a history of quantum computing. Now, the first point of difference I learned between classical and quantum computing was the difference between a bit and a qubit. (laughs) And like many of you listening out there, I'm I'm sure that it had been a long time since you thought of your interactions with your computers at all. You don't think about how information is represented by a zero or a one. Your computers are just there, ready to be used at all times. We, We live so much of our lives now on these machines, be they laptops, desktops, tablets, or phones. 
But it's important to understand that the very nature of classical computing is based on yes or no, off or on, binary. This is an example of Boolean logic at work, something Sebastian and I also talked about. That's, I think, an incredibly important uh, thing to point out in terms of what's different about quantum computing is that classical computing, the nature of the binary digit is that it's entirely artificial, right? We, that's a construct of our minds. We decided George Boole in the, I think, 19th century came up with Boolean logic where he proved he made a, a system of logic where everything was reduced to a true false statement. Basically, you could he proved that you could express it's a logically complete system. You could express any form of logic in just a huge set of true false statements. But quantum computing isn't binary. Qubits are to quantum computing what bits are to classical computing, the basic unit of information. They do not follow Boolean logic. In fact, they can be both zero and one, both on and off at the same time. In other words, unlike its classical counterpart, a quantum computer can walk and chew gum. <laughs> you know what? This actually feels like a good time to turn over to our friend Abe for an Abe-splainer. Hi everyone, my name is Abe Asphal, and I lead the quantum education efforts at IBM Quantum. A qubit is just shorthand for quantum bit. It's the smallest bit of information that can be used to describe a quantum state. And really, um, at the end of the day, what you're doing is defining the state of a two-level system. So some amount of zero and some amount of one, vaguely. Uh, more precisely speaking, it's really a superposition of zero and one, where superposition is the mathematical description of that mix that I mentioned with different proportions. And uh, Abe, what is superposition? Superposition is uh, just saying uh, your state is described by a mix of different things. And the superposition is effectively saying those mixes have some proportion of one or the other. So when I say a superposition of zero and one, what I'm trying to say is some portion zero and some portion one. Okay, so... I think I understand that at the most basic level, two subatomic particles can become entangled with one another. What, What is entanglement? Entanglement is really a property of multiple quantum systems having a behavior that is correlated. And so what this means is you can no longer define two quantum systems or multiple quantum systems as individual quantum systems and as only as one big one, precisely. Huh. Thanks, Abe. I, I guess this is what Einstein himself described as a, quote, spooky action at a distance. Because, come on, it's weird to think of separate, distinct objects as sharing a state. This idea is part of what makes quantum physics so non-intuitive to us. And, well, I'll let Sebastian explain. And it's the spooky action at a distance that gets quoted a lot about quantum physics. Um it's a very strange phenomenon because it's one of the things that I think makes quantum physics so non-intuitive to us because it's not how the universe we observe behaves. And right. yet it's the way that the unobservable universe behaves all the time. The way that the unobservable universe behaves all the time. Who are the people who have pushed this industry forward? Heck, who are the people who turned these ideas into a field and a field into an industry? Who are the pioneering theorists, academics, and industrialists who have focused on this entirely different way of computing? Who was observing the unobservable? 
Well, over the course of this series, you'll actually be hearing from many of them. That's sort of why we put this all together for you. Both folks who were either involved in or directly influenced by the conference at Endicott House 40 years ago, and also thinkers and writers who are chronicling this incredible history. Susanna Glickman, a PhD candidate at Columbia University, who is one of the very first people we spoke to in this process, helped to recontextualize this history for us by taking us back further than the early 80s. I'm a PhD candidate at Columbia, um, in, officially in the American history track, but I, I work more in sort of history of science and um, science and technology studies. Um, I have a, a background in mathematics and anthropology, which I majored in undergrad. Um, I did research in quantum algorithms for a little bit and did my thesis on it before coming to, to grad school. Um, most of my research focuses on uh, the history of quantum computation. And I thought, you know, there's probably a lot to explore here. And I was right. I mean, the, the history of the field is super interesting and super tied to um I guess so many different stories in sort of transition from the Cold War, sort of American history um, that I sort of had never occurred to me. I mean, I think, you know, you could probably take any topic and make it sort of a, a story about something else. But it, I think this is an interesting way to get at a lot of major shifts in, in uh, American science and governance. This interview, like so many, was conducted by Sebastian, myself, and our friend from the Abe Splainers, Abraham Asfa, the global lead of quantum education and open science at IBM Quantum. This is Abe. Since uh, you started your PhD, uh, quantum computers are now available online, and I'm curious to hear how that changes the way you've seen people responding to this compared to maybe in the past when these computers just weren't accessible. Yeah, so I remember, I mean, so I started talking mostly to theorists. So that also was, you know, I've since talked to a lot of experimentalists in the field. And so there is, a, you know, I think less of a gap in quantum computing than in other places. But I remember, you know, the first person I just, you know, was really, it was kind of like, <laughs> I cold called Scott Aronson, um, who's like a, a kind of big communicator in the field and a theorist. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hey, I want to write about the history. I'd love to talk to you. Um, and I remember when I first started talking to him, he he hedged a lot about um, whether these things would actually exist at one point. I mean, I, I assume the experimentalist perspective is very different, but he was like, you know, it's great that I get paid to do fun math. And, you know, I'm really excited about this. And, you know, even if it doesn't work out, we get to do all this fun stuff. Um, and I think since then, and especially since... Um, sort of the, the first proof of concept devices have, have, you know, sort of become more real. I think, I think there is more faith in, in the, the potential of actually having these physical devices and people are thinking, you know, there's been a real shift even in theorists work about, you know, they were originally more focused on like super theoretical stuff. Like if you had a quantum computer that had like a million qubits, what could you do? Um, but now I think people are trying to think more, because you know they're they're sort of closer in the horizon, and um, I think people are much more interested in like what could you do with fifty qubits, um, mm -hmm. and that's an interesting shift. It kind of, you know, in some ways, um, is it's it's kind of how the the classical computability um, also shifted between the thirties and forties when they were thinking about really abstract computability problems to the sixties and seventies when sort of 
models and notions of computability crystallized and it was much more focused on like sort of what can we actually build. Um, and so that's that's also been interesting to sort of document and I hope to sort of think more about that through my work um, when I eventually uh, finish my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> what Susanna says there that classical computability also shifted between the era of mathematics before any actual devices were built to the 60s and 70s when the focus was placed on or beginning to be placed on what could actually be built. This is a big idea. As I said, this invites us back a whole lot further in time than May 6th, 1981. We're not just talking about the parallel development between information technology and quantum technology, which, as I acknowledge at the top of the show, can be a bit of a stretch. We're talking about a much longer timeline, one that stretches back at least to the height of the Cold War, to the 1950s, a time when capital and resources were plentiful for a new generation of scientists here in the U.S. as our government was intent on cementing a strategic advantage over the USSR. The threat of total war was on everyone's mind. I mean, just have a listen to this instructional clip advocating, uh, safety. Here they are on their way to school on a beautiful spring day. But no matter where they go or what they do, they always try to remember what to do if the atom bomb explodes right then. It's a bomb, duck and cover. Paul and Patty know what to do. Paul covered the back of his head so that he wouldn't be burned. And Patty covered herself with the coat she was carrying. They knew how to duck and cover. They acted right away when the flash came. And the interdisciplinary nature that would become so essential to quantum, the mix of minds from the academy and industry and government, began to take shape. I mean, I think, you know, what's really interesting about like the end of World War II, early Cold War is you get this, you know, it's like that <laughs> sort of like classic Eisenhower, um, you know, military industrial complex. And, they're, you know, for a while, people are really, really worried about that. They're like, you know, there's all these perverse incentives and I, like those don't go away. <laughs> people just kind of ignore them. But especially like early mid Cold War, you get all these scientists who get incorporated into the def defense industry. Um, and into like the Defense Department and you get this like merge, merging of um, like academia, um, industry, and especially defense and uh, government, which sort of, you know, with the, with the changes brought about by the um, semiconductor industry even become, become even more sort of dramatic. Susanna's phrase there, perverse incentives, leapt out at me. The momentum that powered forward the early major advancements in thinking around quantum, much like the momentum that powered forward the major advancements in the semiconductor industry, started with groups of scientists working to build the atomic bomb. And this affected the funding climate for research and experimentation. I think for a lot of the Cold War, there was much more funding for basic science. Um, and then with the reconfigurations brought around like the 70s and 80s with the um, semiconductor industry, there's a much uh, there's a much bigger focus on um, applications and near-term research and less of sort of like, you know, maybe the physics for its own sake never really existed um, just because it was always defense funded. But there was there was sort of this like image of that and like people at Bell Labs and at IBM in the early days could kind of do much more experimental stuff and stuff that didn't necessarily have like, oh, this is the application that's going right. to immediately follow. This is how you're going to In want some it. ways, I feel like the Manhattan Project is is the most glaring example of that yeah. because it was so speculative. They, right. they had 
they really had no idea. I mean, they had that pool famously, the betting pool to see, you know, what the outcome of the first shot was going to be, including up into and including the setting off a chain reaction in the atmosphere and destroying the entire world. Oh, for sure. Long odds, long odds, not zero. <laughs> But <laughs> but it seems in some ways that like quantum, like if you think of Feynman working on the Manhattan Project, he knew what the the goal was for that. Yeah. It was a, a, a destructive device, whereas his interest in quantum computing and any type of, of funded research around that would have been um, much more esoteric and much more disconnected from any kind of potential, you know, weaponized outcome. Richard Feynman was arguably the most prominent physicist in America in the second half of the 20th century. This would mean that Richard Feynman was a fairly clever guy. In fact, you heard Sebastian mention Richard Feynman earlier in this episode. So if Richard Feynman knew that the immediate funding was for weapons making and not for pushing the boundaries of physics, or as Susanna says, physics for its own sake, then that means it wasn't. That means that the funding wouldn't stay the same as time and national security needs wore on. Basically, um, quantum computing at the outset, like Feynman's interested in it because he's like, well, I really firmly believe that the world is quantum. So he was like, you know, if, if we really are serious about this, nature is quantum, therefore computers should be quantum. We follow sort of nature's guide. Um, and, you know, this is the way that advances in physics are going to happen because it'll allow us to do quantum simulation, which is, I think, his real uh, right. interest. Um, and yeah, that's totally separate from any sort of defense application or militarized application. I should point out here that this was the very first conversation I had around quantum computing. This interview you're listening to alongside Sebastian and Abe. And it felt like there had to have been a lot that happened between the 50s and the 80s in the field that we weren't quite addressing until I realized that there was, of course, a thread linking these two eras. The Cold War itself. Why, I wondered, was a new scientific movement happening in this strange, almost digressive way, at a time of prolonged, decade-spanning conflict between the US and the Soviet Union? Tensions were, to put it mildly, high. The objective I propose is quite simple to state. To foster the infrastructure of democracy the system of a free press, unions, political parties, universities, which allows a people to choose their own way, to develop their own culture, to reconcile their own differences through peaceful means. We invite the Soviet Union to consider with us how the competition of ideas and values which it is committed to support can be conducted on a peaceful and reciprocal basis. What I'm describing now is a plan and a hope for the long term the march of freedom and democracy, which will leave Marxism-Leninism on the ash heap of history as it has left other tyrannies which stifle the freedom and muzzle the self-expression of the people. And so I wondered what it was about this extremely big, trippy idea that grew out of this global tension. If at either end of the Cold War, the 1950s and the 1980s, there were such powerful breakthroughs in quantum mechanics that Feynman et al. were considering to quote Susanna that nature is quantum and so therefore computers should be quantum and we should follow nature's guide. <laughs> Something era-specific must have led to such breakthroughs, right? I needed to know and so I asked her. 
can you actually speak to why that was happening, that at a time where everyone was so supremely focused on the national interest, there was this kind of uh, do what you need to do, go develop this, we're going to be doing this behind the scenes, right? I mean, the speech that Eisenhower made around the military industrial complex set off a, a pretty big idea that everything needed to be sort of in the interest of, of fighting the Soviets. It was an arm, it was a very literal arms race. So how were a group of unique researchers in the middle of the 20th century able to kind of, I don't want to say they were, they were not acting in the interest of nationalism, but kind of get away with the research they were getting away with and be able to work, um, I guess, without what we might now call like adult government adult supervision. So actually, you know, it's, it's kind of this um, like hobby for a lot of the physicists. It does not get funding, um, which is which is super interesting. It's like all these famous physicists or in some like totally random people um, just become fascinated by originally it's like uh, this group of people who are interested in like cellular automata as an alternative to the Turing machine. There's all these like kind of like wacky people (laughs) there's some really famous scientists but there's also like totally like random people who just kind of show up um who have this like vague interest in this thing and so it doesn't become professionalized i think until like there's real real money in it um which is kind of cool i mean they build this you know all these scientists build this kind of utopic community around this like shared interest but it also the interesting idea here that's being brought up is that it was a very small tight-knit community, but there are also tribes in it. Very clear disagreements about whether quantum computers will be real or not, and therefore it's worth studying them or choosing other avenues. And I almost wonder where Charlie fits in. Was Charlie squarely in the middle mediating both sides, or was Charlie squarely in one block but able to talk to the other side? Charlie. I'd heard the name before. Charlie, Charlie Bennett. Sebastian had mentioned him at the top of the show, too. I know that Charlie had taken the group photo of all the scientists and technology leaders at the Endicott House conference in 81, but would he continue to appear throughout this story? Recurring characters, the gradual pursuit of different use cases, the intersection between academy, industry, and government. I started to realize that the history of quantum computing was like anything else I loved. Born from a community. Shaped by an ecosystem. Instead of ambitious entrepreneurs and investors and corporate executives, however, this ecosystem was comprised of physicists and mathematicians, too. It's a bunch of wacky people trying to make computing work like the universe, (laughs) which can be abstract and probably hard to sustain. I mean, people move away, people grow apart, people find new interests. How does one build out an ecosystem, sustain it? What's the current quantum climate? Where's the funding coming from now? You know, I I think quantum is interesting because it's, so as we talked about earlier, um, it sort of started as a super tight-knit, um, small community where everyone was constantly sharing ideas. And I think in the present moment, um, you know, out of necessity, sort of a lot of these different branches have uh, become more distant again. So like the experimentalist community and the theorist community are separate, the computer scientists and all the different specialties that you're talking about, I think they, because of the way that institutions are configured, um, end up sort of in different places. Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting question because, as you say, Susanna, there's a lot of different ways to come at it. Um, from my perspective, there's a there's a um, I've never seen such an early stage technology getting 
uh, investment, both from from public sector, you know, government funding, and also attention from VCs. Um, and that's both a good thing and a bad thing. It's good in the sense that it there is this intuitive, this growing intuitive grasp of of like this is a big deal. This is not classical computing 2.0. This is something different. Um, it it is another paradigm shift. It is harnessing something more fundamental, some you know deeper understanding of how the universe works um, to. To, to you know, train the universe to answer our questions, basically with these devices, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the and this goes back to the Cold War um, framing from before. It, the the progress in this field has been so slow compared to um, other domains that we're invested in as far back as the sixties and seventies, right? Um, and in a way that has played to quantum's advantage or to the advantage of the potential for quantum computing to be um, treated differently. Like we have, we have seen the downsides of, um, of commercializing technology too soon. We've seen multiple bubbles. We've seen, um, uh, you know, unjust distribution of the benefits of, of new technologies. Um, And uh, it feels to me like, and this goes back to the roots, those metaphysical roots of the field as well, that we have an opportunity because we can see this enormous horizon of disruptive change, because we have time before we get there, um, that we may have the ability to change the way we uh, provide access to this technology, uh, encourage uh, diversity of, of um, participation, of contribution to the field, um, and, and really, you know, I mean, I, I think there's, there's an element of optimism in every technologist's mind, but I've certainly encountered, you know, the internet filled me with optimism in some ways that has, has given way to, to, to pessimism in some ways, but I feel like here's another chance. Like, here we go. <laughs> yeah. And it's a really cool thing to see physics research and curiosity aligned with commercial interest. Like one of the unspoken things that you see when someone introduces a, a physical system with a lot of qubits that look like a lot larger than anything in the past is this idea of, hey, I checked and it looks like all my qubits are doing quantum things, which is coming from this fear that as we scale to something of order hundreds of qubits, we might reach this physical barrier because, I don't know, something we haven't seen before, some new physics comes into the picture. This is a field that is constantly changing, and funding is responsive to those changes. The world has gotten more complicated. There's all these like military documents um, from the early 2000s that are like, yeah, you know, the Cold War was relatively simple. You know, we just had to deal with the Soviets and like our whole, all of our institutions were built around competition with the Soviets, that they were the ones we were trying to deter from like dropping bombs. Um, And, you know, I think once the Cold War ends, all of these institutions are like, wait a second, like, why do we exist? And like, why are we configured the way we do? What is our purpose? You know, what does US leadership or like hegemony look like? And you know, who is the enemy? (laughs) Like they're all built around this, like this like Cold War configuration. As I've gone through 20th century history a bit to prepare for this, choosing that duck and cover clip and listening to Reagan and so on, I did try and think about a time in our politics where things felt a little more binary. The US versus the USSR 
us versus them, zeros and ones. But as Susanna correctly points out, there never actually has been such a time. The 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 existential risk is far more complex now. Um, it's a much more complex problem than just we have a single adversary to keep at bay. Um, I mean, and, the Cold War is never that simple, but like that is how yeah. we thought about it. Well, yeah. The, right. Right. You know, it's actually the, the whole in so this this whole infrastructure, this international science infrastructure um, that like makes science you know, more open and um, harder to conceal information is, is a product of like U.S. Cold War diplomacy. Like, there's this great new book out by Audra Wolf called like Freedom's Laboratory, where she traces mm -hmm. the history of that. She says, you know, scientific freedom was basically this like um, Cold War ideology and, and plank of Cold War diplomacy um, that was in sort of an offensive strategy against the Soviets. Cause after like this right. like, uh, Lysenkoism and they were all worried that, you know, like that they made this sort of, they created this ideology where, um, you know, uh, there's this obvious relationship between democracy and science, even though the U S wasn't in any particular way a democracy in the 1950s. Um, and that the U S stands for this and the U S will uphold like neutral scientific freedom when in fact they weren't really right. doing, doing that at all, but it right. for all mankind. Yeah, no, exactly. And so, and, and, yeah. you know, they would, but they would use scientists to sort of like build these international relationships on this premise. Right. Um, and, and like, I think they, you know, these scientists had no idea they were being used for Intel, but they, 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 <laughs> they, they, right. Well, and also uh, almost uh, inadvertently recruiting, right? They were trying to, to, in many instances, trying to spur defection, for example, um, among top scientists by saying, you can, you know, you'll have all the resources you need to do whatever kind of research you want into any yeah, topic. Yeah, it was part of the sort of like, you know, like psychological war warfare was this, this, this ideology. And it was never, you know, really the case in the U.S. Um, and, it, right. you know, any more than it was in, for the Soviets, but, but it, it, you know, it built this global infrastructure and this this norm of like um, international science and exchange of ideas in this way that I think was totally unintentional. The idea that a whole ecosystem based on a free exchange of ideas grew unintentionally is wild. And given my own experience, frankly, relatable. Much like the growth of, say, the early internet, this is shaping up to be an industry born from the passion projects of hobbyists and tinkerers, of academics and builders alike. And it's no surprise that it was during an era when humans realized that, well, we could end humanity, that in the wake of the atom bomb's creation, we would ask ourselves harder questions, that we would be forced to recognize how small we are in the universe, and that perhaps we could take our technological cues from the universe. Our conversation with Susanna, recorded right at the outset of our making this series, also forced me to ask something many folks of my generation are starting to ask. Folks who, like me, have spent their careers in technology ecosystems. What's so great about a techno-utopia anyway? <laughs> Maybe nothing. The reasons for this field coming into being were framed by global conflict, but evolved from rigorous work done by scientists who broke through the confines of their moment. There was something sort of pure, as problematic as that word might be, in so much of the research done between the 50s and the gathering at Endicott House in 1981. But it was also not meant to be anyone's utopia. Quantum, you know, never, you know, never really had that, 
sort of utopic social project along with it. I mean, I think, you know, the metaphysical project that comes with it, the ontological sort of like tr trying to make everything quantum is, you know, really radical in certain ways. And I think, you know, a lot of these, not everyone thinks about the implications of like what it would mean to actually have quantum intuition and think about subjects and objects in this way. I think it's like actually like super, super different and, and, you know, could have really interesting radical effects, but that wasn't, you know, the project was like this sort of, um, you know, like, um, for science sake project. They were like, this right. is the right way to think about things. We really believe in this. We really believe in science and we want to make science better. That's the utopic project that comes with it. So it's not really right. a social project. Um, and right. it wasn't, you know, there was no intention that it was going to disrupt anything besides, you know, that sort of realm of things, which is big, you know, it is big to, to rethink physics and like the way lay people like have intuition or like think about the world. Um, but so, um, I think, you know, the disruptive potential is something that's probably in the future. And if there are sort of utopic social projects that come out of quantum computing, that's mm -hmm. something that will come with like more concrete applications. I should probably, as we come to the end here, close out this podcast by sharing three things. Firstly, I used to be a techno-utopian. <laughs> Secondly, if you'd asked me one year ago if I knew how to define quantum computing, I would have stared blankly, nodded politely, and excused myself from the room. And thirdly, if you'd asked me whether or not there was a kind of computing that could simulate natural systems, well, I would have smiled and said I'd never given it a moment's thought. But at the time, I did not understand that the universe was comprised of information. You know, a, fr a friend of mine said uh, that quantum computing seems like the most postmodern thing ever because quantum physics itself is essentially postmodern in the sense that it it represented like uh, giving up trying to explain logically the way nature should work and just taking as a given. So there's some things that don't make sense and we're going to build a system around those things that are just inherently where you can you can test them they're you know they are uh, uh provable um and immutable phenomena and now we just have to do the math around it that just takes that as a given sort of like speed of light or another constant right, right. i would I mean, push back and say that a podcast about <laughs> quantum might be the most postmodern thing ever yeah. okay fair enough yeah. <laughs> so listen let's forget utopias and dystopias shall we because this story of quantum's past, which, yes, will ideally give us a peek into quantum's future, is the story of something complex and digressive, having grown slowly in parallel to the tech revolution I knew and long understood, blossoming at its own pace, both in response to shifting geopolitical norms and the breakthroughs of a handful of folks in this community, many of whom we will speak to in the course of this series. This is the story of the next revolution in computation. This is Forwards and Backwards, a history of quantum computing. And we're just getting started. That's our show, folks. I would like to thank our guest, Susanna Glickman, co-creators Sebastian Hassinger and Abraham Asfaw, the whole IBM Quantum team for their support and cooperation, and of course, you, our listeners. I am your writer and host, Matt Hooper, and we will catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone.